0: Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I'd like to host my own podcast? Well, guess what? You can go to podbean.com voices and get everything you need to create, manage, and promote your podcast. I use Podbean every week for voices in my head. There's easy uploading and publishing tools, stunning templates, custom domains, social and promotional tools, an embeddable podcast player, monetization tools, and more. It is your all-in-one podcasting solution. With Podbean, you can create professional podcasts in minutes without any programming knowledge. Best of all, everything is mobile-ready right from the start. So go to podbean.com slash voices. And when you sign up, use the code voices and you'll get a sizable discount. Podbean for your home podcasting. Thank you for listening to Voices in My Head. Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is your source for discussions on music, literature, movies, pop culture, theology, and more. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of the Voices in My Head podcast. And don't forget to let the voices in your head be heard by following me on Twitter at Rick Lee James and sharing your thoughts about today's show. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I am your host, Rick Lee James, and today is a very special privilege for me because I am recording on location in Chicago, Illinois, at the Lutheran School of Theology. Did I, did I say that right? Is yep. It, okay, Lutheran School of Theology, and I'm here with my friend David Dalt. David is a very interesting man who hosts one of my favorite podcasts, Things Not Seen. It's not just a podcast like most of us put out. It actually gets onto some radio stations from time to time. So we have WYLLAM 1160 here in Chicago that airs your show. There's also the Public Radio Exchange, so that means at times there are NPR stations, um, places like Cleveland that will air your show. And I'm sitting in the studio for Things Not Seen Right Now with David, and it's just one of my great privileges. So, David Dalt, welcome to Voices in My Head. I'm a fan of the show, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Rick. Well, thank you. This is so cool for me because I never get to like be in someone else's studio to record. And my listeners today are going to go like, whoa, Rick must have really upgraded his sound. But the fact is, I'm you have upgraded my sound. <laughs> (laughs) today, so I'm so grateful to be recording here in the TNS studio. Um, Today, it's going to be about you. I have had the privilege of listening to your show for a while. I know that you are a student, uh, an actual student who studied under Walter Brueggemann, one of my great theological heroes. You're an author. You have been working... Writing feverishly, it seems, every time I see a post by you, uh, not every time, but often you'll say, I wrote X many words today, which is such a profound discipline, you know, and I love that you are so dedicated to your work in doing that. Um, You have this wonderful show that talks about faith and religion and really things that stretch the bounds sometimes uh of religious conversation called things not seen and it's been my pleasure to, to be on your show a couple of times but today is about you and to kind of talk about who you are and the journey that you've taken and uh, i couldn't be happier to be here today so let's start right here um you got your start in journalism uh, when you were 16 years old, writing articles for your hometown newspaper. Tell us just a little bit about that, because I, I, I'd I, love to hear how a 16-year-old kid already started doing journalism. Well, I, I grew
1: up at a time when, uh, I guess, there was a kind of a, a resurgence in the notion that journalism could make a difference in society. And One of the things that uh, happened to me was when I was, I guess, in fourth and fifth grade, so around 10 years old, my mother, who had been an architect, got a job as an advertising designer, and so she would make the big full-page ads for, like, car dealerships down in the town where I was growing up in Columbus, Georgia, and this was just the time when car dealerships were starting to become kind of mega dealerships in multiple cities, and one of the first... One of the first ones that did that was an organization called Bill Hurd Chevrolet, mm. and Bill Hurd ended up being in I think five states by the time the 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 sort of the empire was at its fullest. And she was just on the ground floor of starting to create advertisement for the local paper, but also now for these other papers in these other cities as the dealership was expanding. But what that means, if you're a designer, it means at the time that you're literally cutting Ruby Lith, which is a type of material that that is is photo opaque, so it looks black when you photograph it for the paper. Uh, and she would design things using uh, d- using uh, layout type and and Ruby Lith and little pictures of cars. But in order to do that, she used, and she worked with with others who used the newspaper facilities. But they couldn't use the the newspaper facilities during the normal hours, and so she would go in at around 10 at night and would work until 2 or 3 in the morning. And because she was a solo parent, that means that sometimes I, at 10 or 11 years old, was going in and I was I was being there at 10 at night and usually sleeping at some point but staying until 2 or 3 in the morning, and then we'd come home. And so I got the run of the place, and I got the chance to look at uh, all the newsrooms, and I got the chance to go back and look at the places where they would lay out the newspaper using heated wax and the huge cameras. And then every once in a while, you'd hear uh, at about one in the morning, you'd hear the rumble as the newspaper presses would start in the back of the building, and the entire building would shake. And so I would really think that as a child, uh, newspaper Writing, and the whole the whole environment of the newspaper got into my blood. And then, when I was older in uh, in high school, the the local newspaper the columbus ledger inquirer was really trying to do this kind of activist journalism and it was under a man uh... by the name of jack swift who some listeners may or may not have ever heard of but he was a a real pioneer in this notion of 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 urban journalism and trying to use the newspaper to help make the the entire civic structure better and so jack swift for adults would be getting together people to talk about race and this was in the like late 70s and early 80s and and he'd be talking about you know all the problems that were there in the south and all the things that we still weren't talking about he was using his his status as an editor of the newspaper to try and bring these conversations together but then he also he also decided that he wanted to open up the newspaper and let high schoolers start to write for the paper too and so I was one of the in sort of the inaugural uh class of this uh, group that started writing for a section of the paper called Teen Tempo. Hmm. And so I would go and I would be like a cub reporter and I would I would go and I would research things and I'd talk to people at the mall and I'd talk to people at my school and I'd talk to people at restaurants and I'd ask them questions and then I'd come back and I'd write it up and we'd put it into the paper and every once in a while it would get picked up and and put out there. That was important to me both because it was the first time that I got a chance to really kind of write for other people to read it uh, and we'll get into this more, it was also my first encounter with a crippling fear of writing because mm. that was the first time that I really encountered writer's block. It's like, oh, I've got all these things to say and I have no idea how to say them. Mm. And it was really one of my formative memories is is going to Jack Swift, the editor, and just pouring my heart out saying, I, I can't, and he him literally sitting down with me and having me talk through the ideas and show me how to build the ideas into something that could be read by others Mm. and it was a very very prosaic process it's it's you 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 set things up in a structure for a newspaper and when writing gets hard for me, I find myself going back to that lesson. And I really, I try and write in a very simple way. I don't try and make it flowery. I try and just, I try and stick to the fact, the most important fact first and get to the least important fact. And by the time that you're done, you've got a piece. That was a long answer, but that's, no, that's I mean, good. a lot A lot of my life um, is tied up in my memories of being a 10-year-old listening to the press's rumble. And then being a 16-year-old uh, sitting with Jack Swift, watching him take my ideas and show me how to actually make them something that people would want to read.
0: That's so cool. But I can definitely see that background, though, like even what you do today, just in the way that you ask questions and trying to figure out what the... You you ask some of the best questions, uh, not only from me, but the other guests that I've heard on your show. And... um, you know, was that your aspiration to be a journalist whenever you were a kid, or because I know you went to um, to Vanderbilt? I didn't realize you had been in Nashville in, in Vanderbilt. Yeah. So I I, I went. I, I
1: grew up in Columbus, Georgia, okay. which is uh, about 100 miles south of Atlanta, and I like to call it the Rust on the Buckle of the Bible Belt. Um, it was uh, a very backwards-looking city when I lived there. It's gotten better since in the in the 30 years or so since I've I've not been there, but. Um, then I went from there to a little school in Tennessee called Swanee for my undergraduate. And and then I, I went on many years later and did a, a master's degree at Columbia Theological Seminary. That's where I worked with Walter Brueggemann. And then I, I went from there and did a, a second master's and a Ph.D. at Vanderbilt. So I hmm. spent about, I guess, all told about eight or nine years in Nashville wow. um, and from about, I guess, from about 2002 to 2009. But I, I, I lived in Tennessee off and on for the better part of 15 years. Wow. Have you been back to Nashville lately? No, uh, not, probably not for about 10 years.
0: Wow. I was there a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's kind of like L.A. now. It's just growing so fast. Wow. And the traffic is terrible, but, you know, I still love it, but, man, it's a different different kind of city for yeah. sure. Well, that's neat to have that connection because I didn't realize until today you had been even at Vanderbilt. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your time at, at Columbia, uh, partially because of, of our now mutual friend, um, Walter Bruggemann, who from time to time I go have breakfast with or will do a podcast. And I have just found him to be uh, such a warm person. And, and I've, I've learned a lot from him over the years from reading him. A few seminars that I've been to him with, but I have really grown to love him as a person. And uh, tell us a little bit about just your time there with him and maybe some other professors that had some real influence on you. And um, I'm, I'm most interested, I think, in maybe how that shaped the direction that you took from Columbia on and maybe how you felt that leading into where you are now. Well, let me start way back and say that the same mother that I talked about a moment
1: ago who raised me and took me to the newspaper, uh, my mother was a a very virulent, very strongly willed atheist, and Mm. so I was raised without a faith tradition. And I went as an atheist to Swanee, which was an Episcopal school uh, there in the center of Tennessee, and had some Awakening experiences there that mm. that that made me realize and get in touch with um, something. Let's call it theism, mm-hmm. and from there I I became a Quaker, mm. and so I was a member of the Religious Society of Friends, which is a sort of a fringe church on the side of of sort of mainline Christianity, uh, traditionally a peace church, uh, it's known as, so uh, radical pacifists and radical egalitarians, and so I spent 15 years in various Quaker meetings of various stripes, and in in the process of this, graduated and uh, moved to Atlanta, still was not identifying as a Christian, but was identifying at least as a believer of something, and in the midst of all of this, uh, I'm really kind of pressing the accordion together right now, but let's just say I I had a series of events that happened in my mid-twenties mm. that both awakened me to the real to the realization that I was hungry not just for a general deity, but I was actually I was actually connecting with the story of Jesus Christ. Mm. And in the midst of that, I had a a moment where I got a chance to go back out to California for a, a meeting and California is where I was born, and I was in the midst of this kind of awakening of of desire for a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I felt like Jesus and God, that God had brought me back out to California, the place where I was born, as kind of a rebirth. And so I I was wearing a cross at the time. I dipped my cross in the Pacific Ocean, and I said, "I'm yours, God, and do with me whatever you will, and I'll go wherever you want me to go, and whatever." And you never, ever, ever want to say that (laughs) because within six months, the woman that I thought that I was going to marry had dumped me. Um, I lost my job. I had a nervous breakdown. And the way that I describe that experience now is that it was like you were on a train that was going really, really fast in one direction. And you said, okay, God, take me wherever you'll go. And God picked that train up and set it on a new track and all the momentum that you had if you've ever been on a train, you know this as a train stops, it kind of slams you forward. Well, all of that just slammed me against the wall, yeah. and now the train was on a new track and you know I, as I was picking up the pieces in the in the months after that, uh, really a very crippling depression, and really no idea what I was going to do now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, i, I the, everything that I had thought was the trajectory of my life was was gone, and i I lucked into being uh, associated with a youth group, and this group of teenagers uh, there at Columbia Presbyterian Church in Decatur, Georgia, really kind of loved me back into being a solid human being. I really owe them a lot, and I'm still in touch with many of the the kids that were there at that time, and they they accepted me in my brokenness. They identified with my brokenness, and they allowed me to be who I was, which was, you know, a wreck, but, mm-hmm. you know, and and the the staff and the and the other youth ministers were, were good mentors, and so I was really shown kind of—you've the you, you, you've used a quote from St. Francis, um, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words—well, I was really shown the love of God through these young, young people in a way that was very powerful, and, uh, and in the process of that, as I began to kind of get my life back together— I looked across the street and realized that across the street from this church, there were some tennis courts. And I said, well, I wonder what's on the other side of these tennis courts. It turns out what's on the other side of these tennis courts was Columbia Theological Seminary. Hmm. I hadn't done super well in college, and I had been discouraged from going to graduate school, but I, I found that I had a hunger now to learn more about the faith that I had kind of come into and that probably the best way to do it would be to maybe go and take some classes And so I said, well, if I'm ever going to get let into graduate school, all of the kids of the professors are in my youth group, and they probably like me enough that even though I was a terrible student, they might let me in. (laughs) And so they let me in, and I found, to my surprise, and I think probably to the surprise of my undergraduate professors, that I was actually a really good student. Mm. And so even though I I was a philosophy major as an undergraduate with a 2.6 average, uh, I graduated from Columbia with close to a 4.0 Wow and and really really loved theology especially mm-hmm. and so uh, spent my spent my life at Columbia kind of discerning what the next step was and it became clear to me that the, what I wanted to do was go on for mm-hmm. more education and maybe be a professor but along the way I had the chance to work with some really stellar amazing uh professors. Uh, in in particular, a man by the name of Ron Cram, who was a uh, person that did religious education, who was a person that was probably the closest that I've ever found to someone who embodied the kind of vibe that I think Fred Rogers put out. Just, wow. you know, as a professor and the entire way that he carried himself was, was pacific. And I mean that in terms of, of it really was You know, you felt more peaceful when you were around him. He was very gentle, but he was also just incredibly incisive in the way that he would look at problems and he would analyze them down to their kind of roots. And in analyzing them down to their roots, sometimes he would find the danger in an idea and he would help to show that to you. And sometimes he'd find a joy that was unearthed in that idea. Uh, But then because I liked theology, I worked a lot with a man by the name of George Straup. And I loved George because he was un apologetically reformed. And for your listeners who don't know about this divide, the reformed tradition is its own thing. It's got some ideas about the sovereignty of God and that messes up everything else.
0: Because <laughs> it just
1: it becomes such a such a such a dense structure, the sovereignty of God, that every other theological idea gets bent towards it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I got a chance to begin to learn about the Reformed tradition through George Straup. And then because of the connections that Columbia had to some other institutions, I also got a chance to work under a man by the name of Eberhard Bush, who was the last... The last student and secretary, and he was the biographer of a theologian by the name of Karl Barth. Oh, wow! And so my my lineage is very strongly Bardian, yeah, and really shaped by by the Bardian tradition. Well, I'm glad that he, some people throw <laughs> tomatoes when I say that, but I I find that I'm still drawing on the Bardian tradition even today. And in fact, in some of the stuff that I'm writing, I'm I'm
0: going back to some essays that I encountered in in. Uh, in, in seminary. Well, if I, can, if I can interrupt you for one yeah, moment, please. a lot of my listeners will know that certain times of, of year, I will just take the podcast time to read sermons from Karl Barth and say, today we're going to look at a Barth sermon. So, uh, and, and several of them have had interest in that, so that's great.
1: Well, and, and so I was in seminary as a Quaker during the 9-11 attacks. Mm. And so I had some interesting moments in seminary having to experience... Not having to, but experiencing uh, some intersectionality, and let me explain what I mean. So, w- one of the things that happened was this was also during the time when the Presbyterian Church, it was a Presbyterian Seminary, when the when the PCUSA was going through one of its many controversies around ordination, uh, particularly ordination of same-sex attracted persons, mm-hmm. but also to some extent there was still some pushback against the ordination of women. And, you know, there were, there were people that were classmates that I dearly loved who were, you know, in the struggle because they felt called and the church in some way was saying, we don't censure call. And so for me, the Quaker tradition is a non-ordaining tradition. And so for me, it was an interesting witness to be at a seminary and to be able to say, uh, both in writing but also in my presence and sometimes in conversation, you know, I'm a white, straight male, Mm-hmm. Because at the time I was at it, I was at it, I was identifying as a white straight male. Uh, I'm a white straight male who can't be ordained, hmm. which is which makes me an anomaly in your tradition. Uh, but you need to know that there are those of us who may feel the calling, but also because in, we've got all the right markers, you know, mm-hmm. uh, straight presenting, cis presenting, male presenting, um, white presenting, uh, all of those things that would that would make me a golden boy. Mm -hmm. you know, in the PCUSA tradition, and yet because of the way that I was oriented to the gospel, I was not able to be I was not able to be ordained, and I was able to stand among them as a witness in solidarity with those that also maybe felt the calling of ministry and were not able, able to be ordained. Hmm. That was, I, I hope that that was helpful to, to my colleagues there. It was profoundly shaping for me. Sure. And as I'm now Roman Catholic, I'm still, uh, uh, you know, a person who's presenting in those various registers, but I still can't be ordained because I'm married. And so hmm. there's there's a lot there. I skipped ahead there, but there's a, there's a lot there. Yeah, um, that's fine. But then, you know, this also happened... Uh, you know i happened to be a quaker a pacifist at a time when we were under attack and the response to that attack was well we're going to go now and we're going to fight a country that didn't attack us yeah. you know and then we're going to fight the country that supposedly did attack us and so being being there in that moment was also a profound chance to be a witness as well the most profound memory that i have and this gets to the core of your question was the morning that we were attacked or perhaps it was the day immediately after we were in an Old Testament theology class with Walter Bergerman, hmm. and we were we were there. The class was focused on the Book of Isaiah. But in that moment, Walter Bergerman chose instead to to take us on a survey of the various books that spoke to the condition of the moment. And mm-hmm. the thing, and you know I've got friends like Jonathan Kaplan and others that are now in the pastorate that that also recall this, and i've I've recalled this moment with them where he and I don't know, I'm sad to say, I don't know the exact citation. It may be in Jeremiah, it may be in, it may be in one of the other books, but basically it, it's saying, if you do not do justice and righteousness, I, the Lord Yahweh, I will plow your cities like fields. Hmm. And and he was tying it back together. He said, you know, right now we're in the midst of a moment when our city has been plowed like a field. Hmm. And that's not a call to vengeance, that's a call to repentance. Hmm. That's, you know, that's a moment when God is saying, this is a result of policies that you have been enacting against the poor and the, and, and the least of these among us. What can we learn from this moment? Hmm. And what we shouldn't learn from this moment is to trust the sword and the horses of Pharaoh. We shouldn't, and that's a little Isaiah there. Yeah, uh, we, yeah, we, should, right. we should instead be trusting God. Yeah. And I mean, that talk about a formative experience. Um, that, was, that was profound for me. The reason why I was in that class because I was a theology major, not an Old Testament major in my mm-hmm. graduate studies. And I had been working with George Straub, and I had thought to myself on my trajectory, I'm going to write my master's thesis under George Straub. And then one day, I was at coffee, and I sat down with George, and I said, George, Dr. Straub, I'm planning next semester to start writing my master's thesis with you. I'd love to talk to you about that. And he goes, oh, I'm going to be on a sabbatical for an entire year. <laughs> and so I was not gonna have the opportunity to work with George Straub. And we thought about it and we were like, what can we do? And George said, Well, you should work instead with my good friend Walter Burgerman. Hmm. And so that that began my relationship with Walter. And uh that relationship was formative in so many ways, uh both in terms of his the care that he took and, in, in, you know, I was an unknown to him, and so I took his Old Testament theology class, which blew me away. I took his Isaiah class, which blew me away. Hmm. Um, but then also in working with him on my master's thesis, the, he took the interests that I had. And he, he laughs sometimes when I tell this story because we had decided that we were going to work together on a real, a real uh, bright point for him, uh, an Old Testament theologian by the name of Gerhard von Rod, And we had figured out what we were going to do and i had gone and i'd gotten the books and i'd started to do the research and then i get this note in my mailbox in the post office on campus and if you've ever you've talked to walter and you know he's got a certain style of talk but mm-hmm. if you if you've ever if you've ever seen the handwriting of the man i mean there are doctors who have died and been <laughs> resurrected and still don't have handwriting as poor as this <laughs> and so it's 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 a lost art just deciphering walter's handwriting but <laughs> This note, which I still have, and I'm going to read it in his voice. David, I've been thinking about your project. It occurs to me your proper work is in Rosenzweig. We'll talk about it. (laughs) And it turns out the man was exactly right. So Franz Rosenzweig was a Jewish uh, contemporary of Martin Buber and a philosopher who lived after the First World War but died before the Second World War but who was profoundly influential on the entirety of 20th century philosophy, including Emmanuel Levinas and, uh, uh, and many others who came after. And particularly in the Jewish tradition, Franz Rosenzweig is an important, uh, an important touchstone for a group of people that I was very interested in out of the University of Virginia that did uh, an or, uh, a school of thought called scriptural reasoning, which brings together Muslims and Jews and Christians to read common texts together and to build relationships in their difference across that common text. And Rosenzweig was, ended up being a touchstone for that, mm. too. So so what, what what Walter Brueggemann managed to do was, in the few conversations that he had with me in the process of getting ready for this project, he managed to find the one thing that I, I didn't know about that was aligned with all of my interests that he did know about that would project me and prepare me for everything that I did for the next 20 years. Mm. Brilliant move on his part. I mean, yeah. I would have loved to have written about you know Gerhard von Rod would have learned a lot from that, but I learned a lot more from being thrown into the deep end with rosenzweig and uh, and still i'm I'm mining the the benefits of that you know twenty uh-huh. years later,
0: so he had a lot of wisdom in even helping you discern
1: well, that, and maybe there was some holy know. spirit there too yeah. i i but uh, either way I, I I credit him with with being uh, I, I credit him with being the kind of scholar who would take the time to figure that out, yeah. You know and that I think speaks to to really why my friendship with him has been so strong mm-hmm. and why I feel such a debt to him and why whenever I have the chance to be with him I always pay for his dinner yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> me too yeah because I just' I've, I've been profoundly shaped by him and he's become a good friend and yeah. and we've worked on some projects together and are continuing to so. that's great
0: man and I, I love his laugh too I just oh, yeah. it's just so fun to to laugh with him and I and I was I remember the the first time that I met him, and uh, I—I was—I'm always a little worried when meeting like famous theologians because you never know they're going to be kind of stodgy or, you know, whatever. some of them are. And -hmm. some of them are. And he just was the complete opposite of that. Just such a a welcoming person and truly embodies the things he talks about, I think. Very gracious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so you've been um, living in Chicago now for a while, just to fast forward a little bit. And uh, I know from your bio that you moved to Chicago with your family in 2013, Mm -hmm. and you spent five years, uh, actually the last time I was here with you was at the Saturday Evening Club. Chicago Sunday uh, Evening Club. Sh- Chicago, sorry. I said, that's, Did I say Saturday? You did. Chicago I'm, Sunday I'm Evening sorry. Club. I'm sorry. I've been at a retreat for a few days and it's I'm tired. Right. Um, but yes, yeah, the Sunday Evening Club and so there you were working with uh, Faith Focused Media for television and radio and the web uh, and that's really, I believe, where your podcast started from, wasn't it? Or yeah. was it even before that? Well, so
1: let me, let me go back by going through the Sunday Evening Club. Okay, so the, sure. The, the Sunday Evening Club was a pioneer in religious broadcasting. If you ever wondered why the 700 Club and the, uh, the PTL Club called themselves Club, they stole it from the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It was, Is that right? It was formed in 1908. It was, it was a, a live event at Orchestra Hall down on Michigan Avenue where you know thousands of people would come because after the Chicago Fire, they didn't rebuild the churches in the loop. And mm-hmm. so this became the main... The Sunday Evening Club live event became the main uh, religious service in central Chicago hmm. for a number of years. And, you know, famous, famous preachers. So the, the the entire roster of mainline heavyweights came through, including six times Martin Luther King Jr. came and preached at the Sunday Evening wow. Club. But, you know, as soon as radio was a thing, they started broadcasting radio from Orchestra Hall. And then in the nineteen late 1950s, uh, television became a thing, and they started broadcasting television from Orchestra Hall and unfortunately the the television the television production at the time in this big cavernous theater was not very good because they couldn't get the lighting bright enough and everything and so eventually they moved from being a live face-to-face event with thousands of people to being a studio produced event that had 30 people in a sort of mock audience and and they tried to keep some of the same things but um but what happened was a lot of the televangelists like the 700 Club like the PTL Club they took this idea and they saw the power of what the Sunday Evening Club was doing but they they used much more slick production values mm. and they used they used the studio much more effectively and so very quickly the Sunday Evening Club became sort of eclipsed mm. by these other rising stars in the late 60s and early 70s and and also, I think they were eclipsed because the Sunday Evening Club was never willing to be as strongly to the right. Mm. They really wanted to stay mainline, and they really wanted to be a welcoming place for all the citizens of Chicago. Mm. And to do that, that meant that you know you had to be open to a neutrality that some of these others weren't willing to do. Sure. And as a result of that, they you know they they kind of got left behind. Mm. And so part of my job in the when I came here in 2013 was to help to revitalize some of the programming of the Sunday Evening Club and to think about what new media might look like uh, for the 21st century. And, you know, I, I still think that that, uh, that that is a noble cause for organizations like the Sunday Evening Club, but but also organizations like the Sunday Evening Club became so wedded to the idea of television that it's very hard for them to understand or even to have the strength to find uh for the journey to find new audiences, hmm. you know, the, the, it, sometimes organizations like that, and I'm, I'm not just speaking about the Sunday evening club now, but I'm speaking about other legacy organizations, sure. you know, new media, let's say it's an organization whose, whose mission is to make sure that the Bible gets into everyone's hands, like mm-hmm. one of the Bible societies. And there are many of them. Sure. Yeah. Well, now the Bible is in everyone's hands, you know, they can literally download it on their smartphone. Mm-hmm. And so, all of these organizations in the wake of new media and in the wake of the way that new media has made people able to access information. They've had to rethink their model. And they struggle with that. And And I, I helped, I hope I helped with the Sunday Evening Club with that for about five years. And as they're continuing to struggle with that question, you know, they, they have good leadership and I'm, I'm hoping that they continue to to uh, continue to take that question into the 21st century, because I really feel that the legacy there is incredibly strong. And again, you know, the just the access in their archives to the history of mainline preaching is unparalleled by any mm. other organization in America. Wow. Um, but I, I, I have been uh, an independent producer for the past two years and have continued to be able to build relationships. You know, coming out of that trajectory with the Sunday Evening Club, I've now continued to build relationships on a national level with organizations like Sojourners and Commonweal and and Freedom Road and just some really wonderful organizations here in Chicago. Okay, so that's... Let me now back up. Um, Things Not Seen got started actually in Memphis in 2012 when I was a professor of religion at oh. Christian Brothers University and it came with me to the Sunday evening oh, club. Okay. And it was my intellectual property when it came to the Sunday Evening Club. And we co-produced it out of the Sunday evening club for a while because again it was a great example of this new media. Sure. You know, because it was a hybrid of an old model broadcast and a new model podcast. And we were trying to do that same thing with the television pieces as well and so we were using that as here it's got a brand it's got an audience let's use this as one peg to hang the tent on sure. and then let's find other pegs and let's build other pegs and so when i left the sunday evening club things not seen came with me mm-hmm. and continues to this day it, uh, it it's you know it's it's been an interesting journey and i've learned a lot that i now use in my consulting business uh, to help other people to figure out things like intellectual property and mm-hmm. you know something like voices in my head you I imagine own that outright, you Mm -hmm. own the name and you've got the trademark and all of that. Well, some people, if they don't bother to do those things, those properties, those ideas can become jeopardized when other people say, oh, this is good and here's a really fast way to get an audience, I'll steal the name. Mm. And early on with Things Not Seen, there was a virulent anti-Muslim organization that decided that they were going to start their own podcast called things not seen. Wow! And so luckily I had the intellectual property in place and my lawyer wrote a, a very kind, but sternly worded letter and we shut that down. Hmm. But I, I mean, those are the kinds of things that, uh, that I work on now is trying to help people who have good ideas, protect those ideas and
0: get them out into the world. That's great. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, so I've been in both studios now and I'm always amazed at your audio quality. Studio is such a generous term. (laughs) You know what though? Um, you're talking to a musician who records in home studios, which are sometimes not even as big as this office, you know, (laughs) at -hmm. times when you go in. So, uh, in the age we live in studios, I mean, honestly, your phone can be your studio to an extent and has been mine from time to time. So it's very interesting, but yours is, uh, is, great the audio is always so good but not only the audio quality um i want to talk about some of the guests that you've had sure and i and we we may not be able to talk about a ton of them with the time we have but um i i have a, a couple of favorite episodes one in particular my my favorite uh, was when Jim Wallace was just coming. Out. It's been a few years ago now, but he had the book uh, America's Original Sin, and you interviewed Jim Wallace from Sojourners, um, and that was one of my favorites just to get to hear his perspective on things. And there's still a few quotes from that show that I'll use from time to time that Jim said, um, but I'd love to hear from you. Um, first of all, tell us some things that just in case any of my listeners are unfamiliar with your show. Um, I'm going to assume all of my listeners have heard every episode of mine, so they've heard the ones that I've been on your show. But, um, but for someone who's new to it, explain sort of the premise of the show, and then get into us uh, some of your favorite moments with guests. I'd love to hear about that. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my work. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Things Not Seen
1: is born of a couple of moments There's uh, from many years ago now, I think 2011, from uh, a a publication called National Catholic Reporter, they did an article called NPR, Not Particularly Religious, Hmm. and they talked about the frustration that a lot of NPR listeners had at the way that NPR National Public Radio covered religion, and they either covered it as this kind of boutique weird oddity, or they covered it in a completely anthropological way. But they seemed to have no ability to take a person who actually was just speaking about faith as a central part of their life and an animating force of their life, and just to take that seriously at face value. Hmm. You know, they always seem to to need to find some kind of cutesy angle on it. Hmm. And this, I read this article when I was a professor, and it, it stuck with me. And and I was I was very, I, I thought about it and was thinking about you know. So there's there's an audience that that listens to NPR and is interested in NPR style shows that is frustrated in the way that NPR creates programming. Okay. And then a few years later, I was listening to an interview on an NPR program called Fresh Air Mm -hmm. and Terry Gross was interviewing an anthropologist by the name of T.D. Lerman, Tanya Lerman. And Tanya Lerman had just published a book called Coffee with Jesus and she was, her field work was going to evangelicals who took seriously the idea of making space in your day for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so they would literally sometimes set out a cup of coffee and they would have coffee with Jesus, imaginatively having this conversation and telling Jesus about their day and being open to Jesus, kind of giving them insight and whatever. And I mean, I have the utmost respect for T.D. Lerman's work on this project because of the way that she approached her subjects. Mm-hmm. Okay, she did it the way that I would want her to do it. In the course of this interview, and I've gone back and listened to this moment many times, and I'm not going to completely quote it, but I will paraphrase it in very much the spirit in which it was said. Terry Gross says to T.D. To Lerman, you know, sometimes when little children are growing up, they have imaginary friends. And at some point, you need to say to them, your friend is not real. Hmm. Didn't you feel a responsibility to say that to your interview subjects, to tell them that, that their imaginary friend isn't real? Hmm. And at that moment, I can pretty much say that the idea for how things not seen should approach everything that we do was born I wanted to create, and if you think about a a show that is on NPR called On Being, Mm -hmm. okay, and On Being started out on NPR as a very different show called Speaking of Faith. Hmm. And over time, the producers and the main person on that show have made the decision to stop speaking of faith and instead to kind of speak in a kind of kumbaya way mm-hmm. in the notion that we're all kind of spiritual, man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're going to ask questions about that core of mysticism that animates us all. And for listeners who can't see me, I'm literally rolling my eyes right now. <laughs> kind of like faith without religion yeah. type thing. Yeah. 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 So, I, I want things not seen to fit into the hole that is left between the, the, the biased antagonism of something like Fresh air mm-hmm. and the kind of vapid, empty spirituality and i'm saying that with you know in a technical sense of of a program like on being, and that's the whole that we're designed to fit into we're we're producing with the same production values and audio quality of an NPR show, mm-hmm. and with the same ideas about how we're approaching our subjects as, as the NPR shows, in terms of what, you know, we're not an evangelical show, we're not going to do altar calls, we're not going to ask people to, you know, send in and get a piece of the true cross for your donation or <laughs> anything like that. You know, we're not that kind of show. We're, we're much more like an NPR show, but we're an NPR show that takes faith, central and seriously. Mm-hmm. And the notion that what animates you as a Christian and what animates me as a Christian may be vastly different, and that that difference is interesting and should be talked about in its detail and in, in its particularity. And so, the uh, you know, Nick Adams, who's an old colleague from Scriptural Reasoning, uh, has a phrase that we learn in our process to disagree better and to make those disagreements public. Mm. That's really what what Things Not Seen is trying to do. We're trying to learn how... I'm trying to model how to disagree better with people Mm -hmm. and how to make those disagreements public so that others can learn from them. But also, you know, in the process of iron sharpening iron, my faith becomes more central and more strong as it comes into hospitable contact with the faith of others. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, examples of that would be like a guest like Nancy Ellen Abrams, who wrote a book called The God Who Could Be Real... And her idea is much more like what you would have encountered in the 70s, like the coming of the cosmic Christ. Like mm-hmm. she, she wants to imagine not a God who is talked about in the Christian scriptures, but rather a God who fits well with the ideas of physics. And what kind of God could that be? Hmm. And so in the course of our conversation, we managed to be talking about her children and my children. And I talked about the Virgin Mary. And she goes, oh, you don't teach your children that kind of stuff, do you? And I said, I absolutely do. Blessed Virgin Mary is very important in our mm-hmm. household, but mm-hmm. those kind of—I mean, those kind of moments where where we actually unearth the oh, you don't believe this, and I do—you mm-hmm. know—that to me is is fascinating. The guests that really touch my heart, though, are the guests who who allow me to discover something that I hadn't expected going into the interview, and so there are oftentimes, uh, you know. Those kinds of moments where I have expected the the interview to be about one thing, and it has ended up being about another, um, you know, and those those moments are fantastic. And I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I like those moments more sometimes than than the than the moments that I get with people like Jim Wallace. Right. No, no patch on Jim Wallace. Sure. I, I, I'm very thankful to be able to get nationally repped uh, guests like Jim Wallace and Stanley Wass and, and others. But what I find is oftentimes they, John Shelby Spong is a great example. I, John, I, there, it's been so long that I would have I would have said if you had met the, the young me, I just wish I could sit down for an hour with John Shelby Spong because there are <laughs> questions I'd love to ask him. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to ask those questions because mm. he, you know, he's he's so full of knowledge and so good at what he does, and he's and he's done so many interviews that you ask him one question and he just goes. Oh and And oftentimes you find that that the the higher level guests and you probably encounter this too the higher level guests come well prepared mm-hmm. and they're almost impervious to real human moments yeah and it's it's the nature of the business, but I really prefer the the moments when when we can find real human contact yeah. and in fact, you know in the conversations that you and I have had, you have been willing to be very vulnerable with me, and you've risked with me mm-hmm. in those moments. And when you do that, you're you're epitomizing what I want out of a guest. Mm. You know, you're creating a moment where there's real vulnerability that they may not hear, listeners may not hear anywhere else with this particular person, sure. or vulnerable in a different way. And that, to me, is is the real animating mm. love that I have for this is getting a chance to
0: have those connections with people. I, I know what you mean, and uh, I had I don't know if you're familiar with, not uh, that I, I want to make this about me, but it just goes along with what you're saying. Uh, the actor Stephen Tobolowski Uh, who you know played Ned Ryerson in Groundhog Day and uh, he wrote a book about sort of his return to Judaism and uh, it it was wonderful to have him on my show because uh, unexpected to me I mean we were both getting teary throughout the interview because of some of just the moments I I call them God moments where we're just so overwhelmed by whatever it is in the moment that's taking us and uh, finding a commonality. So I, I agree. Those are some beautiful moments. And uh, it, it is interesting that when you get some of the polish off, uh, <laughs> what's on there. Um, I I, I want to talk about something uh, in, in the last few moments that we have here together that you feel like is most um, of importance to you. And I, and so I kind of want to let you choose a little bit. I know you've been working on uh, a biography, I, I believe, about Walter Brueggemann. Correct. And that's been one of the things you've been writing. But if I'm not mistaken, and you'll, you'll have to tell me if I'm wrong, because I see you a lot of times only through social media, uh, working maybe all on a novel as well, and you're just... Uh, you're a writing machine, you seem like, and it seems like you press on through, uh, at times, what you seem to talk about as crippling writer's block or just, you know, I know that you've talked about struggles with depression and, and things like that that I feel like we could go on for hours if we if we opened up too much. But um, any of those uh, writing-related topics, I'd I'd love to hear more about from you and just kind of where you are on that, maybe even some of your writing practices, because... Uh, What people who maybe aspire to be writers or uh, just even when they think of writers, they don't realize that in order to be good at what you do, you have to be disciplined about what you're doing. And I know that you are. So I'm I'm just going to kind of let you choose what direction you want to take this part of the conversation because I want to find out what's important to you.
1: I appreciate the chance to talk about this. So I mentioned earlier my mother who was an atheist and who was very formative to me both in terms of her you know when i was very young she was an architect and it formed my consciousness to watch something be on paper and then be built and to have a chance to go to the building site and to be able to literally walk through the walls that i had seen on the paper before and then eventually to see a finished house it's it it shapes i can't stress how much it shapes every way that i think about mm-hmm. everything from a conversation like this to a philosophical problem to a book that i'm reading to a movie that i'm watching I can, because of that, I can think about the structure behind it very easily because I watched it happen. And then my mother also, you know, shaped me in terms of, you know, she was, she struggled with alcoholism, she struggled with depression, um, and she was, you know, she was not very self-aware about these struggles, but she, she embodied them, and I watched her as she did these sorts of things, and that was very formative for me. And then, as I mentioned, she was an atheist. Okay, well... For you know, compressing a lot of history. Uh, we had our ups and downs, but, you know, I am not an atheist. And so a lot of what the last 30 years of my life was, was kind of going in and out of an orbit where my mother completely didn't understand who I was and where I was trying to use what I understood about her to help me kind of reconnect and that worked better and worse, and we, we would have good years and bad years, literally, and I, I I count them in years. And then in 2009, very unexpectedly, she died. Mm, sorry. Oh, thank you. Um, she she died, she died, uh, and I don't know much about the circumstances of how she died, but I do know that she died alone, and she died alone partly because she was she was unwilling to let go of the. 35 years of accumulation that she had in the house in Columbus, Georgia, even though she hated Columbus, Georgia. You know, she had family in Michigan that she could have and should have gone back to that would have helped to care for her. But she died alone in a house surrounded by things. Hmm. And I didn't know that she was sick. You know, hmm. I didn't know that this was... The end. And, and, and she had just found out, she had found out years before that I had been, I had been a, con- a convert to Christianity. I would converted to Christianity. But I had only... a couple months before disclosed to her that I was Catholic mm. and the you know in her worldview uh, she was kind of Galileo was right and the Catholic Church was wrong and so the one thing that that I could be that was the worst possible thing would be Catholic mm. so let's just say that she died and we had unfinished business mm. okay we had unfinished spiritual business and I was just I had just gotten married I had I had not yet found out that my wife was pregnant. We had, we had suffered a, a loss of a, of a child before that, uh, which we don't talk about a lot. Sure. Um, but then you know, she died. I found out that my wife was pregnant and I got a job as a professor. And I got into this new life and this new trajectory, having, you know, I literally had to drive down in a whirlwind tour with my wife and get what I could from the house that I that could be brought back in the car and then the rest just had to be scattered to the wind. So I had no time to even put her affairs in order. I literally had time only to make sure that her body was taken care of and the little that I could was taken care of and then I had to leave it all behind. Sure. Alright. So, as I got into my life as a professor, I began to discover that I was having problems with writing. And then within the space of about 18 months, I discovered And it was gradual, but I discovered that it wasn't just that I was having a problem with writing, but that writing had disappeared completely, even to the point where I couldn't write longhand. Hmm. Um, And it was profound. And it was, I've described it to a student. uh, She asked one time what it was like uh, years later when I was reflecting with her. And I said, it's like your arm has been cut off. You can remember picking up the coffee cup. You can remember how good the coffee tastes. You can remember how much you want to have the coffee, but there's nothing physical you can do to pick up that coffee cup. Mm. That was the closest analogy I can find to what it was like. I wanted to write. I knew what I wanted to write about. I knew, I knew and had a desire to write more than anything in the world because I, I had all this stuff that I wanted to get out, and I couldn't even write it longhand. I couldn't mm. even make notes many of the days. and And so... You know, that, that ended up being largely the impetus for me eventually leaving academia because if you can't write, you can't really be a, a professor mm-hmm. um, because production is so much a part of what you, written production is so much a part of, of what you need to do as a professor. But it also, I had a very wise friend who at the time said, well, you can't write, but you can still talk. Hmm. And so that actually, in 2012, so 2009, my mom dies, I get the new job, and I start into it. And by 2011, I figured out that I can't write. Hmm. But I can't tell anybody because this is the kind of thing that you can't out, you can't go to your colleagues and say, hey, I'm having a really profound and crippling writer's block because they would, I'm, I don't know how they would react. But, hmm. but, but I can't imagine that, that, that knowingly the school could have kept me on in that, in that case. But around late 2011, early 2012, a very wise person said, you can't write, but you can still talk. Maybe there's a way that you can record people in conversations. And maybe that can be useful later. Hmm. And that was the other seed crystal that led to things not seen Hmm. was it was a therapeutic way of trying to maneuver through my loss and my absence. And, you know, it's now 2018. So we're nine years on from the death of my mother. And it was September of 2017. So eight years on when the writing came back. Hmm. All right, so what I you asked about what I want your listeners to know. I want your listeners to know that if they're going through a process of grieving, um it takes its own time. Hmm. And you're not bad because you can't function the way that you used to be able to function. And you're not bad because you're not you're not recovering on somebody else's timetable. And I also want to say to your listeners that there is that of God in it because things not seen continues to be something that blesses my life and in many ways it got me to chicago it got me on the radar of the sunday evening club it has helped me to be uh, a national figure in some ways you know i'm known to people like jim wallace because of the work that i do i sure. think on on things not seen and all of that would not have been possible if i had just taken the normal path and it was grief that put me on this other path and grief putting me on this other path has led me to uh, has led me to a lot of blessings hmm. you know so i i was talking to an old friend peter Oakes from University of Virginia, and we were talking about this thing with my mother, and he says, well, it it sounds like your mother's continuing to bless you, (laughs) and and it was the oddest thing to have somebody say, but when he said it, it clicked, and it was like, yeah, it really is, you know, not the way that I would have wanted her to, but so little in terms of the way that my mother nurtured me would have been the way that I would have asked for it, you know, in terms of my desire, Uh, so uh, the writing came back in 2017 in September, and so what I do now is I write and the, the three things that I want to leave with your listeners are one, it's kind of two, two phrases that I really animate my life. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly and whenever possible learn in public. Hmm. And so uh, Anne Lamott, who wrote a really good book on writing called Bird by Bird, says be willing to write crappy first drafts and... One of the things that has saved me in my writing process is the willingness to write crappy first drafts, so it doesn't have to be perfect. Nobody gets to see it. It just it is, but it happens, and I do it, and it's a discipline that I come back to every day. But even though I don't let people see what I'm initially writing because it's so crappy... I try and make sure that people know that if I have a project that I have to work on, and the, the, what you've referenced, this page and word count that I've, mm-hmm. I've been doing for the last several weeks is because I'm under contract with a book for Yale, and they've been very patient during these years of my writer's block, but they finally said, okay, come on, Dalt, by you know January 1st, 2019, we need to have a 60,000-word 60, a 60, manuscript in from you. Mm. And so to write a 60,000-word manuscript, you've got to write at least 60,000 words. Mm-hmm. You notice my voice is tripping, even as I'm saying it, um, because it was daunting. Well, unless you're writing a thousand words a day for 60 days. And so I've, just, I've, I've, I've decided that learning in public means that everybody gets to see my word count against that 60,000 every day. And I'm going to up it by at least a thousand every day. And this is the last piece that I want to leave with your listeners in terms of self-definition. Um, when I first got to Chicago, I came up, and this is because of my father, who's a big fan of Zig Ziglar and motivational speakers, I came up with a, a phrase that defines who I am. And the phrase that defined who I, who, f- defines who I am for Chicago is, I make radio in Chicago and everything else is negotiable. <laughs> that was kind of how I navigated mm-hmm. everything that came at me. You know, If I have a choice to make, is it going to keep me from making radio in Chicago? Yes, then I'm not going to do it. Will it help me to re- make radio in Chicago? Yes, then I'm going to do it. A year ago, I appended the phrase, I make radio in Chicago and I write every day and everything else is negotiable. Mm. I define myself as a person who writes, not a person who has to write. Mm. Uh, because if I have to write, it's a, it's a chore. But because it's what I do and it's what I do because it's who I am, it's a joy. Yeah. Because when I get a chance to do it every day, even if it's terrible, it's who I am. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's been the piece that I've been working for almost nine years to get back to because it's always been who I am. Mm -hmm. But now, thankfully the arm grew back and I get to do it. Yeah. So that, I mean, what I'd, what I'd say to your listeners is don't give up hope. God is at work even in your pain and in your misery and in your loss. And as, as you are, as you are willing to be broken and reformed in new ways and thrown against the wall, God is faithful. Mm. It's the David, best I got,
0: <laughs> David. That's that's a lot, man. That's I, great. I
1: don't often get a chance to talk about this. Normally, I'm just asking the questions. So sure. I, I appreciate very much the you. You really let me go on and on, and I I hope I didn't go on too much, but I I really
0: I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity. No, it's been it's been great, and I especially appreciate what you said about people not rushing through their grief, and I think that's so important. One of my pet peeves. <laughs> is being in churches and uh, God lover. She still goes to my church. I don't think she listens to this show, so it won't matter. I won't name her name, but she's one of those people that every time a loved one dies, she comes up to him in church. Praise God, they're with Jesus, you know, and not at all what they need to hear in that moment. And I just always want to say to people, like, exactly what you said, please take time with that grief. Yeah. Allow the grief to work itself out because in... Um, to quote Fred Rogers again, I don't think it's a direct quote, but um, he said something to the extent of uh, the fact that we grieve something means that there was a great deal of love there. Yeah, and and so in in a way, our grieving is our way of loving. Mm-hmm. And and I and I think that's a very powerful thing. So, well, David, this has been wonderful. Thank you for spending some time with me today. For all my listeners, I want to point you to the thingsnotseenradio.com. and you can find out more about Things Not Seen, the radio show and podcast. And also, if you use Twitter, not seen at not seen radio, and. Uh, yeah you'll find out all kinds of wonderful information there's some great shows you can hear and it's just been a real privilege so David Dalt thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week you're welcome Rick it's great to be with you thank you thank you for joining me here this week on voices in my head I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleyjames.com follow me on twitter at rickleyjames like my artist page at facebookcom slash James and keep up to date on what I'm writing on my author page on Amazon. There's also the Voices in My Head Facebook community, found at Facebook.com/slash/VoicesPodcast. And if you want to follow my alter ego on Twitter, follow my popular Mr. Rogers quote account, found at Mr. Rogers Say. Also, make sure to follow my appearance schedule on my website. And if you would like to have me come to your town to do a concert, a speaking engagement, or a book event, you can book me through my website at rickleyjames.com slash booking. And it would mean the world to me if you would write a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews we receive, the more visible this podcast is on the internet. And now, the benediction. May the God of peace, who raised Christ from the dead strengthen you in your inner being for every good work. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon you and dwell within you this day and forevermore. Amen.